This is Stacey Hillier, and you are listening to the Prophetic Collective Podcast. Well, welcome back, everybody. Time is flying, and today we are going to talk about something that I'm seeing the Lord do in our church, but I think right across the great Southland of the Holy Spirit right now, and you've heard me touch on it in previous episodes, and you're going to hear a lot more about it later in the year. That is, I have seen the Lord do a worship reformation, and he's continuing to do that in my heart, in our church, but also right across, I believe, the nations of the earth right now. So it's my honor to welcome back an absolute fave of the podcast, Joel Field, because we've done so many intros of you, Joel. This time, we're going to do Tell Me What Instruments You Play. Let's have a competition because we're free of fear of man and performance. Right. List out your instruments. Let's see what you got. <laughs> um, okay. I play keyboard, play guitar in different electric acoustic bass. It's there as well. I can hit drums, mm-hmm. not particularly well, but I, I like to hit things hard. So drums can't. In another lifetime, I played saxophone as well. Mm-hmm. Ironically, it was the only instrument that I learned formally. Mm-hmm. And it's the one that I don't touch anymore, much to the chagrin of my parents. Much to the chagrin of your parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a word for the day. It's <laughs> a Welsh word for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Queen's English, that is. I'm going to leave that alone. You think you mean the King's English <laughs> well, now, currently? I don't, yes. know what, I don't know what his English is. And then, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's it. Whilst we're just talking about the king, not the king of kings and the lord of lords, but the actual king of England and his empire, I did find it very impressive the other night when I was watching the game that stopped the nation, the Tillies versus England. We won't talk about the result. But what really struck me actually was the fact that the English team, as that camera shot panned along them, not one of them made a mistake on God save the king. Right. I was like, this is an indoctrinated country because I'm still singing God save our gracious quicking. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were all over it. So is that a thing? I mean, I don't know, being that I haven't been back to the motherland, but I, I'm sure it would be a thing for me in that I would be, it would be quing or something like that. Yes. Um, Not because- one of them. They're all no, over it. They were, they were, yeah. They were absolutely all over it. And it's interesting that now you're saying haven't been back to the motherland, but for the last 24, 48 hours, all you've done is boast about the motherland whilst on the soil of this well, land. Yeah. I mean, because it's felt like hostile territory for the last, you know, few mm. days as we've approached that match that stopped the nation. I felt like, yeah, I was, you know, behind enemy lines. That match did not stop our prayer power, that's for sure. That still went off. But for those who caught a part of the game after that, i got to say, not a big fan of soccer, but I'm a big fan of Australia and I'm a big fan of the Tillies. So bandwagoned that like there was no tomorrow, lamingtons and all. So you can have that for free today. I love that. I don't know when this podcast is going out, but it's probably long forgotten. (laughs) Never forgotten, never forgotten. By the time it comes out, we will have taken third place for sure in the World Cup. 
Well, I'm just prophesying that England are going to come first. I'm going to win the final. Whatever. You're going to edit that out. Question for you. So I remember like the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, no comment, thank you, used to have like banger songs for every World Cup, like a Ricky Martin song. Dun, 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 dun. Don't think that was it. But along those lines, mm-hmm. how come the Women's World Cup doesn't have a song? Couldn't tell ya. Well, you play so many instruments, so why don't you make that happen? Well, maybe I will. FIFA, give me a call and uh, I'll be yep. there. All right. Well, I'm sure they are listening. Mm-hmm. So this is right up their alley. So let's talk about what instruments I play that could feature on this track for FIFA. Can't wait. I'm actually a flautist. Of the and nose I've, flautist? Just the flute. And okay. yeah. so, you know, I've done quite a few grades on the old flautissimo. Wow. Um, so there's that. I, like you, I'm a fellow saxophonist. <laughs> How am I only learning about this now? You're welcome. And, again, did quite a few exams on that instrument. Like you, keyboard, I play a different variety than you in that I'm good at reading the notes and learnt that way. So there's that for free. I also did feature in the recorder band, not going to lie. So there's that. I did not play the drums, so can't do that. Cannot play the guitar or the bass, can't do that either. Um, so that's essentially, oh no, I forgot the violin. I also learned the violin for a long time. So look, right up there. I don't think we can call it even, but given our recent loss to your homeland, I just felt like even though I'm free of performance and fear of man, I needed to get that out there. You certainly represented yourself well and came to the competition, gave a good account of yourself, just like the Matildas. Look, I cannot confirm or deny whether or not there is a flute solo on a Ron Canoli album that was me. Um, right. Can't confirm or deny it, so you'll have to rely <laughs> on the spirit for that. Well, from my memory uh, of watching those Ron Canoli uh, DVDs. I think you're done. Sorry, you're breaking up. You're breaking up. <laughs> so today, Joel, we're actually going to talk about a topic. <laughs> really? Okay. That's very close to our, our episode today. Let's, let's stop talking in. smack. Because probably everyone's tuned out by now. But we're going to talk about this worship reformation, which is one of the things we see throughout historical revivals, right throughout the Bible, as well as through modern history, the restoration of Davidic worship and how this and revival have always gone hand in hand. And we've touched on this in a previous episode, but I actually want us to jump in. We can only redeem this by going to the Bible. Yes. Maybe the only thing that would be better is if you played the saxophone while I read the Bible. That wouldn't redeem anything. I okay. I'll tell you that now. All right. Well, let's just go 1 Chronicles 16, and then I'm going to do a bit of a, a small teaching, which you can interrupt if you want before we chat. So let's start with verse 1. And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to eat a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. This, of course, Joel, is the parallel passage to 2 Samuel 6. And I just want to point out here that David offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings is really important because he's not a Levite. And also the fact that he's put the ark of God inside of the tent. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. Verse 4, 
Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the Ark of the Lord to invoke, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him was Zechariah, Jael, let's skip those names, play the saxophone, please, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And then there's this psalm here, Joel, that David wrote and gave to Asaph as a model for worship taught by David. And so it's worth even studying that psalm Mm. in your own time because he models here that we remember God and his past deeds, that we thank God, his present activities and his promises, and that we praise God that we adore and exalt him for who he is. And you can you can look at that throughout that psalm. Okay. So we're going to skip over to verse 37 of chapter 16, where it says, So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the ark as each day required. And also Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers, while Obed-Edom, the son of Jejuthun and Hosa, were to be gatekeepers. And he left Zadok the priest and his brothers to the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly morning and evening to do all that is written in the law of the Lord that he commanded Israel. So he's left everything else from the Mosaic model back in Gibeon and he's just brought the ark into Jerusalem. With them were Heman and Jejuthun and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Heman and Jejuthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. The sons of Jejuthun were appointed to the gate. Just pause there for a second. How many of our songs that we sing in worship would we define as sacred songs? Yeah, wow. And there were people appointed just to minister to the Lord in sacred song. Mm. So, Joel, the background to this passage is obviously that David, King David, was a man who dedicated his life to beholding the beauty of God. And I'm leaning heavily on a book here that you and I have just read. We'll link in the show notes another life-changing book that's for now, which is called Discipleship Begins with Beholding by Samuel Whitfield. Again, we'll link that. You can also do an online course that we will link on Corey Russell online with Samuel Whitfield going through this book. If you're if you're feeling like the Lord wants you to be part of this worship reformation, I recommend this book. Mm-hmm. So David was a man who dedicated his life to beholding the beauty of God. He wrote in Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And because of this driving desire, David established what we've just read about, a worship sanctuary that became known as David's tabernacle. And it was built upon the pattern of Moses' tabernacle, but it was also a foreshadowing of how God wants to dwell among his people. And David was a prophet. Acts 2 talks about this, that David even saw that Jesus would be resurrected and raised to the right hand of the Father. So here is David in all his prophetic glory. So David actually built his kingdom around the presence of God. He re-established Sinai, so Exodus 19, and we'll break this down in this future series. But the 12 tribes of Israel were stationed around Sinai with presence or God's tangible, visible, audible presence 
corporately amongst his people. And David was reestablishing a kingdom built around the presence of God. What's really interesting is that when David was king, the most majestic person in Jerusalem was not David. Yeah. And this is one of the, the differences between him and Saul. Saul wanted to be the man, a man gripped actually by fear of man mm. and performance. Yeah. And we see that then in his daughter, Michal, whereas David knew how to live in fear of the Lord. Yes. So David establishes this worship sanctuary that includes night and day singing about the beauty of God. But interestingly, when he left the rest of the tabernacle at Gibeon, where the priests continued to perform the sacrificial ministry, even though they no longer had the ark. So he had this mosaic system of worship ongoing, but God was now openly visible in the center of the nation in this tent. And there were no veils in front of it. Mm. And the king and others wrote and sang songs of worship about his beauty and his purposes on the earth. And that book we mentioned actually talks about how these songs discipled a nation. Yes. These are the songs we want to be singing and writing today, songs that disciple a nation, not stroke our emotions. Mm. So the presence was no longer restricted to the high priest under David's kingship. The nation was becoming a priestly people. Again, this is a restoration of or or has always been God's desire. Again, in Exodus 19, God talks about his desire for Israel being a royal priesthood right back then. And, Joel, we often talk about that from 1 Peter, like it's a New Testament concept. Right. That because of the work of Jesus, we've now become this chosen people royal priesthood. But it's right back in Genesis in the garden and in Exodus 19, and then here we're seeing David bring a foreshadowing of this. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh, I want to dance. So it's important to notice that in every revival since, Davidic worship has been restored, and this move of God that we're in the midst of will be no different. So Jehoshaphat, Jehoiada, Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they all restored Davidic worship. Mm -hmm. We are in the process of doing that. So we will do a whole series on this, Joel, but... I want to state here, one of my revival reflections is we have been within, without realizing, a revival reformation where we have been unlearning, something established has been pulled down to the bare ingredients, the Holy Spirit has hovered over it, and now he's reforming it into something brand new, Yes, where we return to the true beauty, the fascination, and the worship of Jesus with unveiled access an understanding of our role as the priesthood of believers. So there's a very basic surface level teaching on an epic topic. So Joel, in 11 months, our worship and us as worshippers, we have been undone and reformed and remade. What do you think has been the biggest change in you personally? And you do have to narrow it to just one (laughs) as a worshipper. As a worshipper. Yeah. I think that the, I think it's been about rediscovering or perhaps discovering for the first time the heart cry of my soul in terms of, like David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that Mm -hmm. will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And I think unknowingly, perhaps at times that has always been a heart cry, but it's it's been buried under a whole bunch of other things. Yes. 
that have perhaps gotten in the way of revealing a full expression of that. Yes. So whether that's ministry, whether that's ambition, whether that's leadership or the task of even worship in itself. Yeah. Just the everyday, you know, duties that come along with uh, ministry and everything like that. So I think that, yeah, perhaps the biggest change in me personally is a stripping away of all the external things that would have perhaps buried that somewhere deep underneath and rediscovering that heart cry of what is obviously not just mine, but mankind's original design and dignity found in the face of God, discovering and beholding and looking at the face of God and and being transformed into his image. And so, yeah, that's the best I can answer in one. Mm, That's beautiful. I would say as someone who's walking alongside of you, one of the transformations I've seen in you and within our team, and we touched on this in an earlier episode, is the freedom of manhood to express tenderness in worship. Yes. Because David had this combination of a worshipper and a warrior. Yeah. He was a man's man who Mm -hmm. went out to war and slayed thousands. The women wrote songs about it, who slayed bears and lions. Like this was a fierce dude. And yet he gave his life to gaze at the beauty of the Lord Mm -hmm. and wrote some of the most tender lyrics that have discipled nations for generations. And I think I I see that in you, Joel, that, you know, you're such a warrior on your instrument and all your instruments are weapons, but there's also this ability to be very tender in the Lord's presence and for this to show this beautiful, even redemption of masculinity within the church that I think is such a beautiful thing because you carry the heart of David. It's it's wonderful. You know, I think, Joel, you've heard me talk about this, but the listeners won't have heard this yet, that I've been very much reformed in the last 12 months in a lot of aspects, but particularly as a worshipper, which is every aspect of life. But the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, I, I want you to take the word of God mm-hmm. and then I want you to take every principle you think you know about worship even what you've taught and what you've been taught by people you know and you love. And I want you to hold it up against the word of God and then see what remains. In my pride, right, I'm like, well, you know, I've used scriptures to teach these things. Of course it's going to remain. Mm -hmm. What I actually realised is I'd taken a lot of things out of context to justify a leadership principle from the culture of the world. And so actually not much remained about what I thought I knew about worship. So then I had to say to the Lord, well, can you please teach me how to worship lead again? And in his beautiful kindness, he's like, no, I won't teach you that, but I will teach you how to worship in spirit and in truth. I can teach you through my word and through the guidance of my Holy Spirit how to worship me in spirit and in truth. And this has involved some very, you know, pivotal moments as a worship leader who maybe even saw that title bigger than the title of worshipper that we'll share about in that other series that involve things like him getting all up and even what leading lines I could sing and say Mm. uh, and the things that that taught me. But let's be practical for a moment and talk about some of the things that have changed on a practical level about our team and our leading of worship together. Let's start with how we plan set lists. And we have touched on this before but can you actually talk through not the formula, but the mm-hmm. prescription from Psalm 100? Yes. And um, which is a Psalm of David. 
and then how we bring that across to our planning. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like you said, not formula, but we are seeking to rediscover the Davidic, yes, you know, instruction on worship. Yes. And so Psalm 100 is such a well-known psalm for worship leaders around the world, you know, in terms of entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. But I think that I have rediscovered the power in thanks and praise in thanksgiving and praise to the point where in order to posture my heart in worship, I need to enter through gates of thanksgiving and through courts of praise before I can worship God for his character and who he is and gaze upon his beauty. My own heart has to be in a position where I can gaze upon his beauty and worship him for his character. And so I find that posture to worship by going through thanksgiving and praise. And so I'm very intentional or I do my best to be intentional that I myself first and foremost put thanks on my lips yep. and that I give people who I'm leading through those gates and into those courts, I give them opportunity to literally say thank you yes, and put praise on their lips because only then can we begin to behold his beauty. Otherwise, yes. we're t- what... And this is why I never understand why people turn up late to church, because what they're perhaps unknowingly doing is trying to find a shortcut into the presence of like, if I can, it's almost like you're trying to zip line over the walls, over the courts and and into the holiest place where we can just worship. But if you try and shortcut it, your heart won't even be in a, a position where it's open to worship God for who he is. So so that very much then comes into my, you know, our planning of set lists. Yes. And even when we're coaching worship leaders as well, we're doing our best to encourage that we're always putting thanks and praise on our lips as we come into his presence. Yeah, beautiful. And you and I will do a whole episode on Davidic order of set lists mm-hmm. and the prescription that the Bible gives us there. But let me refer back to our passage for a moment and then Second Samuel 6, the parallel passage. It's interesting because Mikkel is at a distance at the window and feels like she can't enter in, so she judges from a performance mindset. What had happened in the procession so far is David had been dancing before the ark with the other priests bringing praise and thanksgiving. So here he is in this inner court's heart posture of expressing this intimate, unashamed, unbound dance before the Lord in intimate attire which he had mm. no right to wear because he yep. wasn't a priest. And because Mikkel hadn't come through gates of praise and thanksgiving, this could be one possible reason, and she's literally distanced at a window, mm-hmm. she can't understand the intimacy that David is expressing yes. and so she judges it. Yes. Now, in Old Testament temple, there were literal gates that mm-hmm. people were entering through. So this metaphor made a lot of sense to them. Yes. I'm coming through one area into another and then into the Holy of Holies. And we'll teach on this in that next uh, season or next series. But it would literally be to not enter with praise and thanksgiving would be like us being mickle at a window yes. whilst everybody else is dancing before the ark. And that can be possible whilst you're seated next to somebody in a pew 
or a seat in church because you came late. Yes. Or because you were distracted during the praise and the Thanksgiving moment. So again, not a formula because there are pitfalls with teaching anything like this, but definitely the biblical Davidic order of worship. Let's recommend another resource while we're here, Joel. Do you want to talk about the Tabernacle of David? And we'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, Tabernacle of David by Kevin Connor, who's a local Melbourne man or was a Melbourne man before he passed and just incredible teaching on the Tabernacle of David. He's got a whole series, Tabernacle of Moses and the Temple of Solomon Mm -hmm. as well. But if you want to get really geeky (laughs) about Bible study and the, the whole unpacking the treasure trove that is the Tabernacle of David. And I think for me, what I've discovered as well is the importance of this based on even into the New Testament. So a lot of people will discount this because, oh, that's Old Testament worship. Yeah. And and Jesus came and he, he, you know, tore the veil and got rid of all that, not got rid of all of that stuff, but dealt with all of that stuff, right? Yes. And, and, and we miss out then on the whole heart of God that this was in his heart from the very beginning, as you've already That's said, right. from the Garden of Eden into calling a kingdom of priests, uh, of a nation of people that would minister to him. And then David captured that heart. And as he built the tabernacle and then left Solomon a blueprint and all the materials to build him a temple and build him a dwelling place. And then even then, as you go through the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, there's always this heart cry of the father to bring his people back and restore the tabernacle of David. And then when you read in Acts 15, when they're talking about Gentiles coming into the church and they're grappling with this new era um, as the early Christians, what do they refer to? James gets up in that council in Jerusalem and he talks about well, he quotes Amos 9, which mm-hmm. is about the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Yeah. Yep. So in the early church, it was like, we're here now. God has finally, you know, done everything for us through Jesus to restore the tabernacle, the tent of David. So that I think that's why it's so important for us to even talk about it. And why we'll do a whole series on it is because this isn't just Old Testament. It's not just reserved for your Bible teachers or, no. your, you know, your Bible college students and things like that. This is so important even for how we do church today. And this is why, Joel, it's called a reformation. Yes. Because this once existed. It's yes. always been in God's heart. And good people like us with noble and pure intentions have tried to keep church relevant and tried to be Paul, be all things to all people, etc. right? And in doing so, we've deviated from this Davidic worship. Yes. And so God is reforming Davidic worship. And you're, you were quoting there Acts 15, 16, which says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. I believe as a prophet that James quoting this scripture in the next decade will become as prominent in the church as Peter quoting Joel in Acts 2. Yeah, wow. So where we talk about Acts 2 a lot in the church, Mm -hmm. we will talk about the restoration of David's tent and David's tabernacle in the next 10 years as the Lord hurdles towards the end times movement. This will become as big to us in church. You'll start hearing it preached about. You'll start hearing it talked about. Oh, but James stood up in the council and, and talked about the restoration of David's tent. 
So there's been a restoration of the prophetic mm-hmm. in the last probably 10, 20 years yep. that the Holy Spirit and, and more movements being open to that, that the Holy Spirit could be poured out on all flesh. Mm. Where We would say, I would say we're at a depth in our understanding of that. We are not at a depth of understanding about Davidic worship and this that James quotes to the council. Yes. That is coming in the next decade. Acts 13 is a key part of this. Mm. We'll unpack that in future episodes. So, guys, you have to come back. But let's get back to talking real practical for a moment. Yeah. Let's talk about tracks. <laughs> yeah. How do we use tracks now with this growing understanding as opposed to how we used them in the past? Yeah. So I think that I'll uh, preface this by um, saying that I've always been a huge advocate for tracks. Me too. And so I've utilized it from the very beginning of when they became a thing. And uh, shout out to Bailey at Multitracks. <laughs> shout out Bailey. What a <laughs> legend. He is. My gosh. Uh, let's get Multitracks sponsor this. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. So I'm a big advocate of tracks because. I mean, in different contexts, right? In our context where we often lead in, in a very large room, there's a lot of sonic space to fill. And yeah. so tracks can be really beneficial in us filling that sonic space where we, mm-hmm. we don't have, you know, 13 guitar players and, and seven keyboard players and so on and so forth. So they can be very useful in that. What I've always subscribed to, though, is that tracks should always serve us and not the other way around. Yes. So if we start saying things like, oh, we can't do that because the track does this, yes. or we can't go there because the track does this, then that's uh, a problem. I think as well, there's like everything, these things come in in waves in terms of stylistically even. Um, the, the worship songs that we're singing nowadays are, are different. And so the way that even guitarists are playing now, the effects that they're using, yeah. the way that keyboards are used and synths and everything like that, there's actually, we've learned ways to fill sonic space where needed yes. to the point where we're not so reliant on tracks. And then practically also we've we've learned ways and gone, you know, really deep dived into technology and things like that to make it work for us so that we can jump around sections so that we can fade tracks out, bring them back in and jump all the sections and and things like that to make it work for us. But then I would say a lot of times now in our set, we also don't have tracks at all because again, uh, I mean, we're so blessed by our musicians in, you know, putting their hand to their craft and learning new techniques and sounds and everything like that in order to help support what the Holy Spirit is doing. But yeah, we always, always make the tracks work for us and not the other way around. So exactly right. They need to be the servant and not the master. And this is part of any reformation, whether it's in the church, out of the church, is that what was a tool becomes a trap. Yes. And this is why a reformation becomes necessary. So what had happened, my observations, we would have never done a set list five years ago without track. No yes. way. Yes. Because we were trying to fill that sonic space, etc. So that was a tool we used to help us. It has now become a trap that we have to undo because it has taught us to never embrace the awkward mm. because there has never been space. Yes. Tracks are there to fill space. Yes. So then when you start to explore how do I embrace the awkward and and do less so God can do more, 
that tool becomes a trap. Yes. That must be put back in its place. So Bailey at Multitracks, we love you mm-hmm. and we still are purchasing all the tracks. <laughs> all of them, yep. But they are being put back into their rightful place and kept a tool and not being allowed to become a trap. Mm-hmm. What other practical changes have been required to reflect our learnings and this inward change about Davidic worship and ministering from that place? I think that we've had to become much more flexible in terms of we might have rehearsed something, you know, even in soundcheck and in our rehearsal beforehand, like gone to a moment in worship and rehearsed a particular song and then never get get there in the set itself. Yes. And so that might mean for, a, say, a worship leader or a co-leader that they don't get to lead that song that they'd rehearsed that week mm-hmm. or even that they'd had that moment to lead in rehearsal or it might change from service one to service two. Yes. And so you have to die to yourself yes. in those moments because you won't get to lead that song that you were really looking forward to leading or, yes. you know, that ministered to you on some level. And so, yeah, we constantly have to, you know, inwardly lay ourselves down and then be really flexible to the point where we may not get to do that in the service mm-hmm. itself. So those are some of the practical changes as well. We just learned how to be flexible in, yes. in every sense of the words and uh, not hold on so tightly to roles, titles, positions, and who's on a certain mic, who's on a certain part of the stage, all the things, you know, that we've just learned to lay down. Yes. Again, I quote the book of Philip Hills, chapter one, verse one, blessed are the flexible for they shall not snap. There you go. And I've seen some snaps on the stage mm-hmm. when people haven't been able to be flexible, myself included, because we like order and we like knowing our piece of the puzzle and where we fit. Yep. So we're all learning whole new ways. Let's talk about what do you think has been the biggest internal change in this reforming of worshippers amongst our worship leaders? What's What's been the biggest one? Well, I mean, last year in, I guess, we didn't know it at the time, but in preparation for what God was about to outpour in us was we went on quite a deep discipleship journey with our team. Um, And a lot of that was talking to inward postures of us. You know, one example would be about being before you do. That if our doing for God exceeds our being with God, that will quickly snap us. Yes. <laughs> and so now that doesn't mean what I think the initial reaction to that when people hear, am I doing, you know, more for God than I am being with him, they will do less. Yeah. I don't think the answer is to do less. That's right. But rather to be with God more. And so I yes. think the biggest internal change in us as worship leaders has been we need to be in the secret place more mm-hmm. because when you go onto a stage where you might be leading for, you know, 30, 45 minutes, an hour, you can't lead people where you haven't been yourself. Yeah. And so it became very quickly revealing or it can become very revealing as to who has been there before yeah. and who uh, has been in familiar places with the Father in the secret place. And so yes. that's not, again, to lead us to performance. Yes. 
to know what the tricks of the trade are in order to give off a sense that we've been here before, but rather it's a, God, I, I really want to discover these deep places with you so that when it comes time for me to lead people, I can be such a good tour guide of the presence because yes. I'm so familiar with this. Um, yes. And I understand, you know, when to turn left, when to turn right, when to stay where I am, when to be quiet, when to lift things and yes. and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, that's some some examples. Yeah. And I know how to become invisible. Yes move out of the way, which is probably more often required than not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, actually, I want to recommend that resource that we actually used to do this deep discipleship with our team, which was Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Peter Scazzaro. We'll link that in the show notes. But we took some of the chapters of that and created these values that we took our key leaders or core team through things like embracing the gift of limits. And the way we even talked about that at the time We had no idea that God was then going to say constraint to restraint. Yeah. So how do you embrace the gift of a limit as a musician in the presence? God was so priming us and getting us ready. So highly recommend that book. How our church worships has changed too. What do you think that's about? I think I mentioned it previously, but I think once you've tasted and seen, you don't don't want counterfeits anymore. That's right. And so the hunger level has risen so much for the authentic for the genuine and for the presence of god i think that expectation has risen for what the presence looks and sounds like i think that miracles being part of our worship and breaking out in our worship so even in that i think we're beginning to cross over the threshold where even in worship before there's an altar open, before anyone's said a prayer, before anyone's laid hands on anyone, there's healings taking place. Yes. There's salvations taking place. And so I think there's, again, this opening up almost of people's, uh, how people view the worship time and coming to church. Yes. They're beginning to discover this is not about me observing a bunch of yes. people on platform. Yes. And and I think one of the coolest things that we've seen is when congregation takes over. Yes. And where we're not required to be there anymore yeah. as worship leaders, but they are singing their own song. Um, yes. And and there's this thing of like like Paul says in Colossians and Ephesians about singing to each other in yes. psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yeah. And that's what we're beginning to see church yeah. doing. They're actually singing to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so that's incredible to to watch and observe from platform. We get to see that. (laughs) So beautiful. It is so beautiful. And, you know, you're looking at people who look more like Jesus. They're getting transformed as they're spending more time in his presence and they're beholding him. They're being metamorphosed. It's wonderful. And their expectation has risen. You know, I remember a, a moment in service a few weeks ago, Joel, where I really felt like the Lord, I wasn't on platform, I was on the front row and kind of stewarding the atmosphere of the service and asking, you know, wow, Lord, what what are you doing? Like adoring him, but what are you doing? I can feel this room is just so full of you. He was like, you don't even have to ask for your healing anymore. I'm here. People are just being healed. And it was so interesting that, you know, was discussing with another leader what, you know, they were about to get up and host and the way they were perceiving the atmosphere was we could ask for anything right now, so let's do it. 
And I'm like, okay, but here's how God's reframing us. Yep. Rather than let's ask him in this moment, let's just continue to put all the focus on him and then celebrate that he's already done it. Yeah. So I actually got up and said to the church, I believe multiple people were just healed during worship. Check your body. Yeah. And their expectation has changed. Mm. So they checked their body and like literally, Joel, 30 to 40 people raised their hands to say they got healed in worship. They didn't ask for it. They just fixed their eyes on Jesus. They ministered to him. And the result was they got the healing that many had been interceding for and asking for for years. Yes. Oh, yes, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I think that's the thing, right? I think when we talk about, as we have previously, about what does it look like in heaven? What does it look like in the throne room? Well, there's no sickness in the throne room. Yeah. There's no fear. There's no intimidation. You know, there's no anxiety. So if we are entering the throne room and we're we're seeing heaven come to earth, and that's why Jesus, you know, taught his disciples to pray. Yes. Yes. Let heaven come to earth is because that's what he wants to manifest. And so, yeah, absolutely, healings can break out, miracles can break out, and because it's the throne room. He inhabits, he is enthroned on the praises of his people. So yes. literally our praises are creating a throne for him to come and sit on. And so if he's sitting on his throne, that makes even the auditorium that we're in, the place that we're gathered can become his throne room and there miracles are normal and anything can happen. That's right, because you're not going to be in heaven asking for healing. Right. And I think one of the little things that the Lord did in me with even lead-in lines was I don't want you to tell the people what to do, like, oh, come on, lift your hands or sing that again. But as a prophet, you can invite them into the prophet's reward that Matthew Mm. 10 talks about of what is seen and heard in heaven. So you can say things rather than lead in lines of the Lord is healing people right now and pull them into the prophet's reality. So my lead in lines have become things like, I'm, he told me, this is your boundary. You can tell them what I'm doing in the throne room right now mm. and invite them into that reality, but you're not to tell them what to do. So good. Because that becomes my leadership is about their response and ministering to them rather than helping them minister to the Lord mm. and receive what he's doing as a result of their ministry to him. Wow. Oh. So good. So, Joel, I'm going to throw out some statements about what I see happening in the worship across our nation right now or to come that he's been doing also in us, and we're going to unpack these in this future series, so this is a teaser. (laughs) Performing and consuming will give way to beholding and becoming. Fear of man will give way to fear of God, Exodus 19 and Acts 15 will become key passages. Hype and adrenaline will give way to harp and bowl from Revelation 5.8. Familiarity will give way to fascination. Indifference will give way to delight and desire. The throne room will be the goal, not stadiums. Hit songs will give way to songs that disciple nations. Horizontal will give way to vertical. And the measure of successful worship sets will once again be biblical plumb line measurements. So we will unpack those in the future. So good. I want to say here, Joel, we have not stumbled across some of these changes. The Lord has led us faithfully, Mm -hmm. but also we've actually taught on Davidic worship. We've taught on Psalm 100. We've taught on the power of praise. We've taught on presence over performance to invite people into the reality of what the Lord is saying and doing. But I want to ask you, what do you see for the worship of our nation in this end times move? (laughs) 
just a small question again. Well, you're a prophet, uh, so it is. <laughs> I think, and you touched on this, but what I'm sensing stirring in my heart that I believe is from the Lord is that this restoration of the priesthood of all believers, yeah. that for too long we have left the priesthood to professionals. Yes. And there's this been separation of the laity and the priests, and we've lost or rather now God is calling us again to mine out the treasure that is the priesthood of all believers, where we minister to the Lord. And again, going back to this idea of the restoration of the tabernacle of David, which is the restoration of of God's original intention of creating man to minister to him, to tend to his presence. And so I think, yeah, for every believer to, to discover, like David did, I think we've we've talked about, you know, the royal priesthood, and I think a lot of emphasis has been on royalty, yes. on our authority, yes. which is, again, a, a huge aspect of our Christian life. But I think perhaps God is calling us to look at the other half of that, of our priesthood, mm-hmm. and about ministering to him. Yes, we have, he's given us authority. Yes, he's given us the keys to the kingdom, but he's called us to be a kingdom of priests. Um, and so, so I believe that's yeah one of the aspects that he will, will continue to reveal in the coming coming days. Agreed. We have needed a restoration or a reformation of our identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. So this, we are chosen. I'm chosen. Yes. But not much on the people. Yep. We want to be an individual that's chosen. Yes. Not a collective group of priesthood that ministers to the Lord together. Yeah. So that is absolutely one of the things that he's restoring. I love how Samuel Whitfield actually puts it in that book, Discipleship Begins with Beholding. He's like, yeah, pastor, go do your little devotion and bring us a word. Yes. And how that season's done. Because mm-hmm. when we grow in an understanding we're all the priests, then we all have a word from our devotion. Yeah. That becomes praise and thanksgiving back to the Lord. Yeah. So, Joel, you and I are going to discuss this in more detail before the end of the year in a whole series called Worship Reformation, which has had the biggest build-up ever. But there it is, a worship reformation. That's another one of my revival reflections is we have been reformed as worshippers and that is continuing. Joel, thank you so much for joining us on this series. Thank you for having me. You're a blessing to me. You're a blessing to many. Love having you on here. Do you want to do a prayer for our listeners today? Absolutely. I'd love to. Father God, I thank you that you are so kind and gracious towards us. Thank you that you lead us step by step. You light our path and you you lead us according to your word. So Lord, I pray that your word would continue to be a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path as you you take us deeper and you lead us, Lord, into uh, into a greater revelation of this reformation of worship that you're seeking, yes. uh, Lord, to uh, bring people into a place where they worship you in spirit and in truth. Yes. And so, Lord, I pray for every person listening to this podcast right now, Lord, that you would begin to reveal to them the treasure that is their priesthood, that you've called us all of us to behold you together. We all with unveiled face now, Lord, see and look at the glory that is in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I thank you for removing the veil. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to remove the scales from our eyes that would blind us from seeing the beauty of your face and everything that you have won for us. And Lord, we pray 
that you would have the full reward for your suffering, that the the bride of Christ would be made perfect and spotless as we gaze upon your beauty and as you transform us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you, Jolie. Thank you so much for being part of it. Listeners, do all the things. You know what to do, but please do it. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye.